You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Ah, that's some good guitar work there, isn't it? Kind of like that. I don't know what the whole message was, but I sure dig the guitar work that's in the background. That's, that's what, how a musician listens to things. Well, it's, uh, it's good to be with you. I, I started to say they dragged me out of the closet today, but that could be misinterpreted. <laughs> so they just pulled me out of the rust bucket to knock some rust off today. Uh, Derek wanted to go away and spend a few days with his family. I go... <laughs> What's up with that? So he asked me if I would, would step in, and it's always exciting to me to be able to come back and uh, teach from God's Word with you. I have been pretty busy, as most of you who follow on social media. I spent a two-week road trip to Arkansas and Tennessee, and then wound up in Kentucky for a week, where the Kentucky Baptist Convention commissioned me to uh, trained the Kentucky Baptist staff, about 75 of them, that coordinate all of the ministry for Kentucky Baptist churches in how to do survivor care in the local church using the Fearless Series for women. And then they sent me around to four different cities in the state, and we did one-day-long seminars for pastors and churches to be able to understand how they can actually minister to survivors of sexual abuse in their local churches. And it was just an incredible thing. And then I had a thousand-mile drive to get back home. Um, I've been home two weeks. Tomorrow morning, I fly to Sacramento, California, where I've been invited to speak to the California Baptist Convention, a gathering of women. And I love speaking to women. I'm so sick and tired about speaking to pastors and men about the whole issue of survivor care in the local church. They don't get it, but women do. When I speak to women about this subject, they get it, and they do something about it. And so I'll be there for three days. I come home one day, and then I fly to Annapolis, Maryland. I have decided to join the Navy and go into the Naval Academy see if they have any positions for one-eyed old people, which they probably don't know. Actually, I'm speaking at a conference there, and then we'll come home, and that looks like uh, kind of it till the end of the year, and then a lot of other things are happening. But in the trip going around Kentucky was in Louisville, it was in Bowling Green, was in Frankfurt, was in Paducah, and then the last day was Ashland, Kentucky, which is on the eastern side of Kentucky, which is right next door to Appalachia, okay? You know, we hear a lot of banjo music, you know, it's deliverance country, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, anyway, one of the people there in Ashland in that area said, you know, the toothbrush was actually invented in Appalachia. I went, really? He said, yeah, if it had been invented anywhere else, it would have been the teeth brush. (laughs) Now, I can tell that because one of the Eastern Kentucky folks actually told me that joke, so at least they can laugh about it. Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4. I'm not going to tell you what the verse is, but Philippians chapter 4. And as you're finding your way there, it was 242 years ago that the Declaration of Independence was penned. And along with that, also what we call the Bill of Rights. And in the Bill of Rights, uh, the rights that we have as American citizens, the privileges and benefits of being a citizen of the United States of America, and one of those is that we have the right, as the Bill of Rights says, to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit 
of happiness. And so for centuries, that's what Americans have been doing. We have been pursuing happiness. And in our day and time, it might be more correct to say we've been purchasing happiness or attempting to do so. But along the way, it seems that something more basic, more foundational, more lasting got lost along the way for many of us in this fast-paced culture. How about contentment? How about contentment? Where did contentment go in our pursuit of life, liberty, and of happiness, in our purchase of that, if you will? What happened to contentment? I came across this cute little poem. It says, as a rule, a man's a fool. <laughs> now, we could stop right there, and it's pretty well said it all, right? As a, mule, as a rule, man's a fool. When it's hot, he wants it cool. When it's cool, he wants it hot, always wanting what is not. I like that. It pretty well sums us up. A few decades ago, U.S. News and World Report did a survey about the American dream. Periodically, a couple every decade or so, they'll do this to, to talk to people about, well, what is the American dream and where do you feel that you are along the process of achieving the American dream? And in this particular survey, they asked them about their, their, their income. That was the main thing. And, and it, it was interesting. It says that those that made 25000 this was a few years ago, by the way, those that made $25,000 a year felt that they would really get there if they could double that and make 50,000. And those that were making 50,000 felt like they'd really be there if they could double that and make 100,000. You can kind of see where that thing is going to go because it was always that that thing that I want, that thing I'm looking for is out there. And if I can get to that place, it's going to be there. And then when to get to that place, then it's somewhere else because the truth of the matter is happiness isn't really the answer, is it? Because happiness is very, very fleeting. It is temporary. It's circumstance-based. And so the long-term answer that to, for the Christian or the long-term pursuit for the Christian should be contentment. And therefore, contentment in whatever home you're in, not meaning that you have to live there the rest of your life, but content there. Contentment in whatever the income level is, whatever the circumstance is, to find contentment in that place. And as circumstances change, to be able to find contentment in that place. You see, we don't talk about contentment a great deal uh, in America because we honestly don't even really know what it is. And so let me talk about three things before we actually get into our text here in a moment that, about contentment that we all need to understand. First of all, contentment does not mean complacency. I think a lot of times people think that contentment means, well, you mean when you get to this place and, and you're content, then you just go, okay, I've arrived and there's nothing else to do. No, that's not what contentment means at all. You should never stop striving. You should never stop seeking to be better and to achieve more with the gifts and the abilities that God has given you. But to be able to find contentment here and not having to look to this as if I get there, I will have contentment. So contentment doesn't mean sitting back and say, well, I've arrived and now there's nothing else for me to do. It's not complacency. Contentment, in fact, as our text is going to show us this morning, is something that we actually have to learn. It's something, in fact, that we can learn. Some of you say, well, that's, you know, I'm out because I never was very good at book learning. Well, the truth is, you don't learn it in a book. You learn it in life. Now, the book, God's book, tells us about it, but we then have to flesh that out in life. And so the good news is that all of us in Christ can find this thing that is called contentment. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul himself says, I have learned to be content. 
Now, what Paul is saying to us there is that contentment doesn't come naturally. We don't just stumble into contentment. It's something that has to be learned. And it is something that we have to flesh out in life. And so contentment must be learned. It's not complacency. It must be learned. And contentment is independent of circumstances. And the reason it must be is because our circumstances change from day to day, don't they? And if our contentment is tied to a circumstance, then, then our contentment is gone as soon as our circumstance happens to change. So we have to think separate and separate these circumstances from this concept of contentment. Happiness in the sense of joyful like that, you know, boy, I just feel real good, is typically tied to circumstances. But contentment is to go above and beyond the circumstances of life. Now, we're doing a series Uh, Derek started this series called the Coffee Cup Verses. Our Coffee Cup Verse this morning, let me see if I know how to do this. Is this the, the reveal, the big reveal? Is Philippians 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him. It doesn't say Christ. It says through him who gives me strength. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That means I'm only four feet tall, but I'm gonna be an NBA basketball player. Because you see, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I barely got out of the third grade, but I'm going to be the CEO of a multinational corporation because I can do all things through him who gives me strength. You already are seeing the, 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 the fallacy of that one. because This is probably one of the most misused verses in the New Testament. And the reason it gets so misused is that we commit that... That major biblical, we call it hermeneutics in theology, that hermeneutical error of stripping the verse from its context. And I love the old saying that says a text without a context is a pretext. That means if you strip a verse of scripture out of its context, then you can make it say anything you want it to say. And so it becomes a pretext for you wanting to justify something that you want to do. Now, it's interesting that the context of our coffee cup verse this week is, in fact, the subject of contentment. And so what Paul is talking about is something that he's learned along the way. And what is that thing that he's learned? He has learned contentment. So the essence of our text is there's a great promise for us here, okay? And it precedes the one in verse 13. And the promise is you can be content. In Christ, you can be content. You can learn contentment. Well, how is it possible? Because Christ gives me strength. I can learn to be content through him who gives me strength. So let's look at the context then. What is the context of this statement in verse 13? What does contentment look like? How can I learn it? Well, let's look at it. Beginning in verse 10 is interestingly enough, which is the immediate context. The first thing is that we have to learn to affirm. Verse 10 is an interesting verse in its context, and if you don't really get the context of verse 10, the background of it, then it'll make no sense at all to you. Paul says this, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. He's writing to the Philippian church that he had actually founded. And you were indeed concerned for me all along, but you had no opportunity. Now you read that verse and you go, 
what is going on here? What's he even talking about? So let me give you the background of that verse so that verse can actually have some meaning for you. As I said a moment ago, Paul had planted the church in Philippi. He had spent time with them. He had grown to love the, the people in Philippi. And when he left, he went on for the purpose of continuing his missionary journey. He would plant a church, and he would spend time there, and then he would go to another place, and he'd plant another church, and he would typically stay in contact with the churches that that God had used him to start all over the ancient world. In fact, he went on three missionary journeys planting churches. Well, when he left Philippi to continue his missionary work, the church in Philippi began to support him financially so that he could give himself in the future cities to his full-time missionary work without having to make tents, which was something that he knew how to do and sometimes would do it, but it was much better if he didn't have to worry about financially supporting himself and he could spend all of his time in the missionary work. And so the Philippian church began to send him gifts and would support him. But somewhere along the way, because they didn't have... uh, Uh, text messaging and they didn't have uh, Twitter and Instagram to keep up and all that kind of stuff they lost touch I mean they where's Paul you know it's kind of like where's Waldo one day (laughs) nobody knew where he was so where do we send the gift nobody knew because they had lost touch and didn't know where he was so they couldn't send him support but eventually they did reconnect with him eventually and we know this from other books in the Bible and other places where Paul talked about this particularly in the book of Acts that eventually they found out, oh, he's in, he's in Rome. That's where Paul was. And he was in Rome, and he was in prison now. And so they sent a gift to him. And in verse 10, as he writes back to them in this letter, he is thanking them for the gift that they sent to him finally when he was in Rome. But he's doing so much more than that. He is saying to them, I get this, look at the verse. He's saying to them, even when the gifts stopped coming, and I wasn't, under sure, I wasn't sure why. He didn't know they'd lost touch with where he was. He thought word had gotten back to them. But even while the gifts had stopped coming, he's saying, I never questioned your hearts. I never questioned your motive. He's saying, I never sat there when the gifts stopped coming thinking all oh, those selfish Philippians, they decided that they weren't all that excited about the work of Jesus anymore and so they're going to just spend it on themselves he said here I am in jail and they don't love me anymore and I'm just going to go out in the garden and eat a worm because nobody loves me anymore and Paul says to them he says thank you for the gift but he also says but but understand this I never questioned you I never questioned your heart I never questioned your motive now what Paul is doing It's something that is so valuable for the human spirit. Paul is giving them affirmation about who they are. Not just for what they had done. Thank you for the gift. But he's saying, but I affirm you for who you are. I know and always know and never question that your motives and that your heart is in the right place. I guess what I would say is Paul practiced believing the best. Now that's an art, isn't it? When you don't know the reason, what do we typically do? We believe the worst. Okay, well, they don't like me anymore. They're not interested in what I'm doing anymore. But Paul seems to, in his life, he always took the opportunity to believe the best about people around him. And that seems to have been a life pattern of his. We see this pattern going all through the New Testament. With Philemon, in the book of Philemon, he says to Philemon, and there were some some issues that were going on in this context of when he wrote to Philemon, but he says, but I thank my God 
making mention of you always in my prayers. Philemon, I'm praying for you constantly because I'm hearing of your love and I'm hearing of your faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all of the saints of God, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Can you imagine being Philemon in the struggle and the times that he was in at that moment? And he gets this from the apostle Paul and says, man, I just see so much of God in you and I see so much of what Christ is doing in you and we have been so encouraged by you. How that must have just lifted Philemon's spirit. Young Timothy became a pastor. He was very young, very, very young. And, and Paul refers to him as his son in the faith. And in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Timothy, I find in you, Timothy, I find the, the, the faith of your mother Eunice. And Eunice was one of those women that was just a great saint of God. And, and even in your grandmother Lois. And so what he's saying is that you haven't left the legacy of faith that was handed down to you. Your grandmother Lois gave it to your mother Eunice. And, and now you're passing it on in what you're doing. And young Timothy being encouraged by that mentor by that individual that had poured so much into him. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, we're encouraged to therefore encourage one another and build one another up. Now, you know that Paul could get salty when he needed to. I mean, he could get downright salty when he needed to. He could get right in your face and say, you need to repent. You are wrong when someone really did, when there was real error that was being taught or there was someone that was living outside of the purpose and the will of God. Paul didn't pull any punches, man. He just got right down to it and said, you need to get that right. But the interesting thing about him is that he didn't go looking for those opportunities, that it seems that his pattern of life was that he was looking for the opportunity to encourage. He was looking for the opportunity to build up. And when there was a need for someone to bring confrontation, then he was more than willing to do that. I love the Romans 12, 15 verse that says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Think about that. Is it your practice to rejoice with those that rejoice? Or is it your practice to kind of be envious of their rejoicing. I think that's more of the flesh, isn't it? That's more of our natural tendency. Oh, somebody had this great blessing. Okay, well, I'm going to smile and say, well, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> but it's not in our heart. I, I've known people who doubted your motive no matter what you did. When you did something they didn't like, they doubted your motive. When you did something good, they doubted your motive. Okay, well, you, 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 know, you did that, that wrong thing, and I know because you want to get me. It couldn't have been just a mistake. You have, really have a motive to get me. And then you do something good. Oh, you're just trying to ingratiate yourself, aren't you? You're just trying to suck up to somebody. That's why you do. So you, you can never win with a person like that because they're, they're always looking beyond what's done and trying to look into the heart and question your motive. And so Paul, the scripture encourages and says, listen, when someone experiences good, make a practice, rejoice with them. When someone receives a blessing, genuinely rejoice with them. I've, I've told you the story many, many times of Mom Jackson, the mother of a, 
a friend of mine in high school that was one of them that led me to Christ right off the streets in my 18th year. And whenever I would go over to the mom Jackson's house, every time I'd knock on the garage door because nobody ever used the front door. She always knew it was somebody bad if they came to the front door. So we came into the side door of the carport, knock on the door. Sometimes I didn't even knock. I just walked in. And she would come up to me and invariably every time and she would put my face between her hands and she'd say, James, do you know how proud I am of you? And there were times that I went to Mom Jackson's house just because I wanted to hear her say that. Because quite frankly, I'd never had anybody in my life that was proud of me. And I was so hungry for that and it, she so encouraged me. And, and I got to preach her funeral about 15 years ago when Mom Jackson went to be the Lord. They invited me to come back to Monahan's and preach her funeral. And I told that story. And, I, you know, that's so impactful when someone chooses to believe the best about you. And she had every reason in the world to choose to believe the worst about me because for 18 years I'd lived for the worst. But she saw Christ and, and she said, this young man needs someone to come along Side him. Last week, uh, a woman in our church who's a recovering uh, alcoholic introduced me to a first-time guest just inside the, the, uh, the family center there. And, and uh, when she introduced me, I put my arm around. I'm not going to tell you who she was because it embarrassed her. I put my arm around and I said, this woman is my hero. And then I just kind of walked away. She came up to me about five minutes later and she said, James, do you know how much that meant to me for you to say that I'm your hero because I think she feels about herself that she's a person that she could not be in, a pastor's hero in any other church. But here is a place that I put my arm, and I wasn't even thinking about that. But it just reminded me how much people are needing affirmation. Everywhere we go, we're, there are people that need us to come alongside them. And so one of the keys of contentment is to get out of yourself. Get out of yourself. And start looking for opportunities to rejoice with those that rejoice, even though you may be in a moment in time of struggle. And maybe they're doing something that you would like to do and haven't achieved it yet, but get out of yourself to find contentment. We're not talking about happiness. We're talking about contentment. Learn to affirm. Seek to believe the best. The second thing is we got to conquer the comparison game. As I said, when Paul wrote Philippians, he was in prison, okay, for the gospel. He was in prison because he had been arrested because he wouldn't shut up about Jesus, okay? And he had appealed to Caesar, and they took him to Rome. And, and it wasn't the first time he'd been in jail. It just seemed like Paul spent about as much of his life in jail as he did free, you know? I remember the story. I told you all this when I first came to this church in 1984, and we started the, kind of, you know, the group with people, and I was the first pastor that came. In 85, my wife and I were driving out in the grapevine. And Tiffany was just a little girl. She was in the, in the car seat, in the back seat. And a police officer pulled me over. And that Laura was in the car, and Tiffany was in the car, and I didn't know what was going on. I wasn't speeding. And he pulled me over because my inspection sticker was out. Darn it, inspection sticker, always get you. Well, then when he, I got out of the car back then, they wanted you to get out of the car. They want you to stay in the car now. But I got out of the car, gave my driver's license. He went back. He ran my license. He said, sir, I have to, I have to arrest you and take you in. You, there is a warrant for your arrest. For an unpaid traffic ticket. Now, I couldn't remember an, an unpaid traffic ticket I had, but it's quite possible there could have been one. I just didn't remember it. And then he said, put your hands on the trunk of the car. I had to assume the position, spread them. He frisked me. I'm looking in the back window of the car, and Tiffany's going, Daddy, Daddy. <laughs> She's in the car seat. He handcuffed me. I kid you not. 
and put me in the back seat of the patrol car and took me to jail and actually put me in a cell. But on the way, we started talking, and he was a very nice guy, and he knew I was a pastor, and he said, sir, I, I am very... Uh, sorry that I have to do this, because by that time he'd figured out I wasn't on the top 10 of the FBI wanted list. He said, but it is department policy. He said, I'm required to take you in for a a warrant for your arrest. And I said, don't worry, it's not the first time. (laughs) And he got a laugh out of that, you know. And so Paul's in Rome and he's going, hey, Philippians, don't worry about it, man. This is not the first time I've been in jail. This ain't no big deal. I know how to handle jail. You see, it's never said, he never said in all those experiences, and, and he had so many opportunities to do it, he said, never said, it sucks to be me. It just flat sucks to be me. Why always me? Why am I the one always getting thrown in jail and all you folks in Philippi, you got it so easy. What I'm saying is he never played this comparison game. He never looked at where he was in the moment and in the time and then compared it to someone else and allowed that to steal his contentment in Christ Jesus. I think one of the things that often does steal our contentment is we do play this comparison game. We compare houses, we compare salaries, we compare marriages, we compare everything, and we always, either one of the two things, we're going to come out with pride because we're going, man, we're so much better than you, or we're going to come out with depression because we go, you know what, why can't I get that? Why can't I have that thing? Three conceptions that people have, have about contentment. One of them is that if I have what someone else has, I'll be content. Now, folks, that is just a lie from the pit of hell. I see somebody get something, and all of a sudden in my flesh, I want it. The I-14 comes out, and suddenly my I-13 is a piece of junk. It's like old school, like floppy disk. Some of you are not old enough to remember floppy disk. My first computer had real floppy, they flopped floppy disk. This begins early in life, doesn't it? I don't have the right logo on my shirt. I don't have the right slash on my tennis shoes. If I wear that to school, I will just die. The second misconception is that if I have more, I'll be content. It doesn't necessarily have to be what somebody else has, but if I just have more, I'll be content. I remember hearing the story about J.D. Rockefeller was asked one day, he was the richest man in the world at the time, uh, how much more will it take? He said, just one dollar more. Just one dollar more. A man that had more money than anybody on the planet, but he just needed that one dollar more. Paul says to young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, but godliness, listen, with contentment is great gain. Okay, godliness that brings with it contentment is the great gain. It's the great, it's the great trophy. It's the great achievement to have godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare in many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root. He didn't say money is the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You see, he's not saying it's wrong, folks, to have things. What he's saying is that it's wrong to let things have you. 
to steal your contentment, that you have to have more. I can promise you, I was in the delivery room with both of my children when they were born, and neither one of them brought anything into this world. (laughs) Scripture's true. And over 42 years as a pastor, I've done hundreds and hundreds of funerals, and I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Never, one time. We bring nothing in, the scripture says. We take nothing out. It is the contentment that we have in the meantime that is valuable. I don't have to have more to be content. That's a lie. Third, if, others, if I have other people's approval, I will be content. Some of you are going, oh, man, you're going to go there, James? Well, yeah, because that's a hellish lie, isn't it? The truth is you don't have to have people's approval to be content in life. But we are surrounded by people who want to tell us that we do have to have their approval to have contentment, right? They want you to believe you have to perform to get their approval in order for you to have contentment. And so they're constantly demanding that you measure up to some standard that they've achieved in their mind or, or that you perform to some way so they can give you approval and then you can be content. And why is that a dead-end street? It's a dead-end street because while you're working to get the approval of crowd A, you hack crowd B off. And then you run over and you try to get the approval of crowd B and now crowd A is all twisted up again. And we just spend our lives so often just running around thinking, if I can just get everybody to be happy with me, I'll be content. Living for approval, the scripture says, is like chasing after the wind. Ecclesiastes 4, 6 is better as a handful of rest than two hands full of toil and chasing after the wind. Hey, it's chasing after the wind. It steals your contentment. To believe that you have to have somebody's approval in order to achieve it. Now, the third big thing, we got 15 minutes, we're going to get it did, that we must do is respond to change by making adjustments. I've watched this in my own life at times and in the lives of other people walk in contentment for a while and then something changes. And the first thing that goes out the window is contentment. Now, I look back to Paul's life because his statement here in Philippians 4 is what we're, what we're looking at, and Paul's life was like a roller coaster. Think about this. He was born into privilege. He was born into the upper echelons of Jewish Hebraic society in his day and time. He was given the best education that money could buy. It says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had, he had checked all the boxes. He was on top of that a Pharisee, which was the upper echelon of the religious sect of the Jews. He was a man of respect. He had everything that life could offer. And then on the Damascus road, he met Jesus and it all went down the toilet. And so then he spent the rest of his life in poverty, for the most part, on three missionary journeys out there planting churches, getting beaten and getting stoned, and I mean that in the sense of rocks. (laughs) For this crowd, I always have to clarify that. (laughs) Imprisoned for preaching the gospel, hated by the non-believers, and sometimes criticized by the believers in the very churches that he had ministered to, you would think that Paul would go, you know what, before I knew Jesus, I had already lived my best life now before Christ. And from the human perspective, he, 
He had every reason to believe that and to say that. To be discontent. To be so unsettled. Look at what this Christian life has done to me. What has God done for me? You know, I had all this stuff before and I came to Christ and all of a sudden, my life has gone down the toilet. But we never hear him say that. Because in the midst of it, he tells us in verse 11 that he had learned to be content. He had learned to be content. Verse 11 and 12, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. He's been poor. He's been bivocational. He'd been hungry. But I also know how to live in prosperity. He said, I've been there too. I've been there. I've been at the top and I've been at the bottom. But in every and any circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and of going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. It's not about circumstance. This is what he learned. It's not about everything I had before. It's not about losing everything that I had last week. It's not about that. He said, I have learned to be filled and to be empty, to be in abundance and be in need, but I've learned to be content. And once again, that means that his contentment was not based in his circumstances. And when things changed for him, therefore, contentment continued. Now, we, we live, let's face it, in a world that is, well, the, the word is change, isn't it? Life is constantly in transition and in change. If you depend on stability in this life for your contentment, you're in trouble because change is everywhere. They tell us that the average apartment complex population turns over completely every two years. That you pick out, on average, you pick out an apartment complex, in two years there will not be a person still living there that was there two years before. Turns over completely. The average stay in an apartment complex is two years or less. Did you know that the average stay in a home is two to four years? We've been in our house for 31 years. My entire street has turned over four or five times. There's not a single person living on our entire neighborhood that was there when we moved into our house 31 years ago. We've had four next-door neighbors, and they ain't all been good. In fact, y'all remember the story a few years ago. Yeah, the neighbors before these couple that moved in there, yeah, the FBI SWAT team showed up because she was running an international drug ring out of her freaking house next door to me. I live in the hood. Wow, I, I walked out one morning, and I, seriously, they were sitting in my yard. There were about 15 of them, and they brought her out doing the perp walk to the car. And I went, hey, neighbor, how you doing? <laughs> I walked back in thanking Jesus <laughs> that he saved me before I got to that point. <laughs> Amen. Some of you can say, I wish you'd saved me before I got to that point. The average person changes ten jobs 10 to 15 times in their life, in their working career. The average tenure of a pastor is two to five years in a church. I've just killed that one. Church member, for a church member, it's probably even less than that. If the average pastor stays two to five years, I can guarantee you the average of church member attendance is less than that. I love this story. You've heard me tell it, but I've got to tell you. For some of you new folks, okay, just so you can be part of the club, okay? You know the story. 
This dude that was stranded on a desert isle for like 20 years, when they finally came to rescue him, they came, you know, they, the rescue boat came on, and he had three little huts built on the beach there. And they said, well, what are the three little huts? He said, well, that first one there, that's where I live. Well, that makes sense. You need to have shelter. I said, well, what's that second hut? He said, well, that's where I go to church. Really? Yeah, I'm a Christian. He said, well, what's that third hut? He said, well, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> I hacked myself off and changed churches one day. Alvin Toffler in Future Shock said, the word is out, change or die. Folks, if you got to have it tomorrow the way it is today for contentment, you're sunk. You have to learn to adjust to circumstances and change as Paul did. He said, look, I know, I know how to be, I know how to have much and I know how to have nothing. It isn't about that. I know how to be free. I know how to be imprisoned. I, I've had those changes, but I've learned. Here it is, folks. We can learn this. Get this. This is not magic. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. And the fourth truth is that we must then rely on God's power for our contentment. So finally, we come to our coffee cup verse, don't we? I've been setting the context for you. I've been setting the context of this verse so that when we come to this verse now and we read it, it's going to have brand new understanding for you and brand new meaning. After he said all of these things and demonstrated all these things in life, he says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now, when you understand his context, all of a sudden you see the foolishness of taking this verse and saying, you know what? I can do anything I want to because God's going to give me strength. So I'm just going to go out there and I'm going to sell everything I got and I'm going to go out and do this thing because I just believe Jesus is going to give me strength to do it. Well, you're pretty stupid. You're a special kind of stupid if you think that's what this verse says. That is so beneath the real meaning of this verse. So if you do go out and do that and you're not content, what worth is there in it? If you do name it and claim it and all of that kind of garbage and you somehow get what, what good is that if there's no contentment in it? He's taken us right to the heart here. He says, man, I've learned all this stuff. You can do it and it's going to be God that's going to give you the strength to do it. Now, This verse, folks, isn't some talisman for positive thinking. To whip yourself up, to go out there and go for the gusto on something. And God may be leading you to go for the gusto. That's not the, pro that's not the point. That's a misuse of this verse of Scripture. If the Holy Spirit is telling you to do it, then do it. But don't say, I'm going to be stupid, and then he's going to give me strength to get it done. God never calls us to be stupid. He calls us to trust him, but never calls us to be stupid. You see, now get this. For Paul, this wasn't, he claimed this truth and he had it. I'm going to claim in Jesus' name contentment. And he got it. That's not what he says, is it? He says, I have learned. You see, we won't, we want the Father to do everything instantaneously. We want, 
We want it to be miraculous in the sense that we want it to just shine and we want it, we want it like, and that's how we want it. And if, and if we don't get it, then somehow we're second class in the kingdom. And most of the New Testament says, work it out, work it out, working out that salvation, learning how to be, well, how do you, how do, you do that? Well, let me tell you something not to do. Stop praying for contentment. Stop praying for it. Begin learning it. We want to get in our, in our, in our cubby hole and we want to go, Lord, give me contentment. Miraculously, zap me with contentment and I'll get up from here and I'll be a contented person and you're not going to get it because he wants you to learn it. And you have to learn it. So better than pray for strength to be content, how about pray for strength to stop comparing yourself to other people? A contentment stealer. How about praying for the ability and the desire and the willingness to affirm other people who are rejoicing in something that you would really like to have rather than being envious of it. Learn to affirm. Rejoice with those that rejoice and pour into somebody's life and get out of yourself and respond to circumstances rather than react to them. Circumstances happens, it changes. Okay, I got to respond to that, so I'm going to respond. Re- reaction, reaction always takes us someplace bad, doesn't it? Most of our lives. When we react, I, I've never gotten anything good when I reacted. But when I take a moment and respond, the once or twice I've done that in my life, it seems that good things happen. So I, this is a great coffee cup verse, now that you understand it. Put it on every coffee cup you have. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. But understand the all things that he's saying is, I can be content in wealth. I can be content in poverty. I can be content imprisoned. I can be content free as a bird. Why? Because I've learned how. And he's given me strength to get out of myself. He's given me strength to stop comparing. He's given me strength to stop looking for the approval of other people in my life to make myself content. Praise him. That's a miracle. When someone genuinely has a day of contentment, it's a miracle of God, isn't it? Much less a lifetime. Rely on God's power. He's the one that's calling you to do it. But don't expect him to take you where you are in all of your envy, in all of your greed, and all of your approval seeking, and all of your comparison making, and all of a sudden zap you and you get up and you're a content person. It isn't going to happen. But you can learn it. You can learn it. And it'll be by his strength if you stop comparison. It will be by his strength if you stop seeking approval. It will be by his strength if you turn from being a negative individual that envies everything someone else has got and you learn to affirm them in everything that you see good happening in their life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you have given us hope for contentment that is not of this world, that is not of circumstances, that is not of things, that is not of getting the approval of people around us, but it is just from being yours. Learning how to do what you did, which is to care about people, to rejoice with them, 
to be secure in the relationship with the Heavenly Father through His Son, to be yours, yours and yours alone, to be willing to take the criticism of those who disagree, to be willing to accept the praises of those who do agree, yet without being puffed up, to just trust you. Thank you for your word that always gives us truth when we really look at it rather than try to use it for our own purposes. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And you are out two minutes early. I never did that in 40 years. I must be getting old. God bless you. Have a great week. Go out and learn contentment.